Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, this is Jeremy Evans with the Believe in Sports Law podcast. Today is Monday, November 4th. Glad to be back with you this week. We've had an interesting week in terms of news and particularly with regard to sports. And so this episode today is going to talk about the NCAA Board of Governors' decision to allow student-athletes to essentially pursue financial sort of recovery from, or financial deals, I guess would be the better way to say it, from their name, image, and likeness. Of course, this is a foundational change and something that has probably been on the minds of a lot of people for a long time. But ultimately, this is now the first time that this has sort of come to light in terms of uh, the NCAA Board of Governors sort of pursuing this. Now, this is on the heels of the California legislation that was passed back in October and signed by the governor. Actually, I think it was on September 30th, so going into October, by the California governor, and that was uh, the Fair Pay to Play Act. And that specific act allowed for student-athletes in California, attending California academic institutions that were playing sports to essentially get um, deals for, uh, for their name, image, and likeness. And so um, even the president of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, came out and said after he was being interviewed after the meeting uh, in Atlanta there, that that ultimately um, the NCAA was sort of moved by the other legislation, in particular California. So here we are, and what we want to talk about today is sort of where do we go from here? You know, what does this mean? And what are some of the challenges that the NCAA is going to face? So interestingly enough, I had a chance to be on the radio about five times last week. It kind of felt like the uh, radio tour of America in terms of uh, being in uh, Oklahoma and uh, Colorado Springs and Michigan and and uh, a bunch of other places. So a shout out to uh, the guys over there at Bleed uh, Podcast Network in terms of getting those getting those shows going. Had a lot of fun with that and got to talk with a lot of folks around the country about the NCAA decision and what it means and whether or not this is going to be something that uh, is followed in the other states and, and how it's going to be implemented. So let's get into some of that. So ultimately, when we're talking about establishing the market for California student-athletes and, and really student-athletes in general, I think the Fair, Play, Fair Pay to Play Act is probably the best way going forward and we'll get into why I think that might be the case. But ultimately, I want to talk about five different issues that I think are raised by the NCAA's Board of Governors decision. So number one, the decision and really the California, the California Pay-to-Play Act raises questions about implementation. You know, how is this going to play out? Now, it's funny, I was talking with a colleague the other day about this, and we were sort of brainstorming and and saying, okay, well, how, how does this play out in the real world? And I think that 
probably the best model is not federal. Federal legislation may cause confusion because then any state laws would have to meet minimum thresholds from that standpoint. And at this point, there has been discussion about potentially introducing legislation in the House of Representatives, but we don't know sort of where that's going to go. And then the second piece of it is that, well, maybe uh, this is better to have the NCAA institute its sort of nationwide policy. And in terms of kind of what the situation is now, you know, NCAA has a policy and then ultimately the individual member institutions have to follow those policies. So it's probably going to be something more along those lines where NCAA is going to come up with some sort of policy, figure out how this is all going to play together. And then ultimately this individual states, if they want, will pass certain laws, basically, you know, locking this in saying that student athletes can indeed profit off of their name, image, and likeness. So that's probably going to be the scheme. I think that we're probably thinking more in line of probably years, more than months, in terms of getting this um, in play. I mean, I could conceivably see this come together in the next year, but, you know, we'll see how that goes. I just, we don't know. And, and ultimately, I think this is just one decision. The NCAA or governors, it still has to, that's just sort of one level and the highest level at that in terms of the NCAA. But this has to be sort of implemented from an NCAA organization standpoint. Obviously, the thousands of member institutions have to implement this. And then, of course, you know, depending on what the states do. So it's going to be an interesting thing to follow. I definitely think that it's going to bring a lot of work about, a lot of discussion about, and ultimately, I think a good discussion. So the next question is really getting into what does this mean for minor league development? Of course, because when we're talking about the NCAA, what we're really referring to in paying student athletes is men's basketball and football. And there's a reason for that. The NBA or National Basketball Association and the NFL or National Football League both forbid high school students from entering their drafts and require them to go, to go through the NCAA or a foreign league before they can enter into the professional ranks. So that obviously creates a guaranteed market for them in terms of when they're looking for the next best players. So this is actually not an NCAA decision. This is a um, in terms of the one and done rule, it's often referred to or the junior rule with regard to the NFL. So because there is that hold, I think which sort of historically has created an issue in terms of athletes being paid because you don't hear about this in basketball, uh, sorry, in baseball, and you don't hear about it in hockey or soccer because all of those leagues and uh, leagues in, in terms of the way that a player might move up through the college ranks or high school ranks, wherever it may be, they have a choice. They have a choice if they want to go pro immediately after high school. And so, or thankfully, actually, they turn 17. And so at that, at that point, I think the choice changes things because you know what you're getting into. And it's like, okay, I'm going to college. I know I can't make money, but I'll take that path. I'll get the education. So I think in some sense, the forcing of the uh, students to take that route is going to, uh, is really created the, the need for this, the need for the NCAA to come up with this decision. And it didn't look like the NBA or the NFL were going to be changing anytime soon, particularly the NFL, because I think that we've seen a lot of leagues come along. You know, we've had the AAF or the Alliance. We've had the former 
XFL. We're going to have a new XFL, and that's actually going to be a spring league. And uh, and ultimately, is that they don't want to be competing with the NFL. They want to be something different. But you know, we've seen different leagues come along, and the point is, is that uh, there hasn't been much success there. I definitely wish the most success to the XFL, and and hope that they can make it through. But ultimately, there hasn't been much much success there in the past. Now, Adam Adam Silver, who is the commissioner of the uh, National Basketball Association, has said that possibly by 2021 they're going to get rid of the one and done rule. Whether that happens or not, but ultimately we're going to come back to that because I think the potential removal of those rules may affect the market of available players who can benefit from this NCAA decision and the California Fair Pay-to-Play Act with regard to profiting off of your name, image, and likeness. So the question really comes down to, will there be any different minor league development, at least according to now? Probably not. The NBA has expanded out the the D-League and got a sponsor, and it's called the G-League now for Gatorade, the Gatorade League, but there's just the players are not coming out of there. You know, the, their, their top talent still coming out of the NCAA. So now ultimately what I could see happening is the NBA getting rid of the one and done rule and then having those high school athletes who would normally go to college for one year, maybe go to the G league for one year, get paid. So we'll come back to that a little bit. The next question is, did the fair pay to play act go far enough? And I'm referring to this because the NCAA has not come up with a sort of scheme at this point. They've just come out and said that this is what they want to talk about and this is going to be sort of the standard going forward. But there's not an actual policy in place at this point. So using California as an example, did it go far enough? You know, my personal feeling on it is yes, that it did. I think that when you're in a situation asking for an academic institution to pay for a student athlete, I think that raises the question of professionalism. I think more importantly, I would almost wish that a lot of these academic institutions would somewhat open their books within reason, show that for the most part, these are not money-making ventures. The only money-making venture in an entire, usually in an entire academic institution is the athletic departments. And a lot of times those athletic departments are paying for other programs at the university that are non-athletic related. So I think sometimes we sort of need to do our homework a little bit here in terms of what's being paid and where this money is going. Which brings up the New York law that was introduced. So now, as we all know, the California Fair Pay to, Fair Pay to Play Act ironed out essentially a few different principles. One was that student athletes could profit off of their name, image, and likeness. Two, they could hire an athlete or agent but three, they would be limited in terms of they could not broker deals with companies that competed or that were in conflict, I guess would be a better way to put it, in conflict with the underlying university uh, sponsors or um, you know, basically sponsors that they have going there. So think apparel deals or whatever it may be. Now, the New York law that was introduced takes it further, and there's three different provisions that I want to talk about. Three, three additional provisions are that basically take the California Fair Pay-to-Play Act, but then add in there will be a 15% charge in terms of 15% of revenue from the individual teams. The college teams would then go to the student-athletes and be split evenly. Secondly, 
there would be a provision that the student athletes would get a percentage of the royalties from or uh, from the sale of jerseys or whatever. I don't believe that's going to be retroactive, uh, but again, that would be another another further way to take this if someone wanted to in terms of a legislature. And then the third and final piece that's in addition uh, to uh, the California Fair Play Act in terms of what the New York law provides that the California Fair Pay, Play, Fair Pay to Play Act does not provide is that there was a potential for a health pension fund, if you will, that would provide for a health benefit uh, payout or insurance, whatever it might be, to a student athlete who is involved in a long-term or uh, life injury with regard to playing sports in college. Now, I think that health one is kind of an interesting thing. I think that's probably something that should be provided anyway when we're talking about, you know, sort of putting your body on the line for a sport. I think the harder to ask, regardless of how you feel about it, are the royalties on jerseys and the um, the paying of any sort of revenue from a budget, 15% or whatever. That's why I was personally uh, pleasantly surprised with the Fair Play to Play Act because it was so um, middle of the road. It was didn't go too, one, too far one way or the other. And ultimately pretty surprising for a legislature that I think has super majorities uh, here in California. So there we have sort of the California Fair Play to Act, Fair Pay to Play Act compared to the New York law. I think so I think ultimately the California law did go far enough and I think that ultimately provides the free market for these players. Then of course that raises questions about what do you do with the funding? You know, do you want college athletes walking around college with millions of dollars potentially in their pocket? You know, do you create a trust? And does the money go into a trust until the the student graduates and or leaves college? So, I mean, and of course, any financial advisor worth their salt would tell you that, that, you know, you need to put some of this money away. And, of course, we're talking about college athletes who are high-level performers, but also maybe, like many of us, don't have a ton of experience in terms of, you know, you're getting out of college and you're, you know, you're finding your way about you or even in college. So I, I think it, I think it just raises some additional questions. Another idea that was brought up, I think, by the LSU head coach talking about limitations on existing deals or deals to happen, meaning, you know, ultimately if a student athlete signed an apparel deal or a drink deal or something, that there would be a, a cap on, you know, how much could be made in that deal. I think it's probably the less likely scenario. And personally, I think that the student trust might be a better option, you know, to where the student athlete can get a percentage of the money and while, while he's in school to pay for different expenses and that sort of thing. And then once he graduates, to take that money and move on. Uh, there's also some potential that, you know, additional monies could create problems in the locker room. I see that as less of an issue, especially when we're talking about this as a free market. Um, you know, competitive environment, you get that there's a leader in the room and, you know, you got one quarterback, you got one center, you know, that sort of thing. So I think it's less of an issue, but I think ultimately something to be discussed is whether some of this money will be in a trust or whether there'll be limitations on it. Two last final points. The fourth thing I think is really interesting, and this is with regards specific to the California Fair Pay to Play Act, because again, the NCAA hasn't gone through regulations on this, 
is that, you know, look, money is important and having a marketplace is important, but I think represent, representation is more significant, meaning that, you know, having the ability to have somebody by your side as you're negotiating these deals or brokering these deals or going out and getting these deals for you, I think is going to help. And I think it's very significant. Now, again, two issues that get raised with this. One is currently student athletes are not allowed to hire an agent or a lawyer when we're talking about uh, advising for the draft or you know that sort of thing. They have to be very careful about that because they can't accept anything of value and they can't sign a contract. Well, how is enforcement going to go on with regard to this or how is anybody going to tell whether a student athlete and an agent or an attorney have entered into a full service or a partial service agreement? Meaning, is the agent also advising on the ability to enter the draft and sort of what that means in your future, future prospects in addition to the point of trying to find or broker some uh, endorsement deals. And I, I think it raises, it raises it as an issue. And I think does it you know, open up the gate for that? And should it be opened? And I think ultimately people need to have access to the representation they want. But again, I think it, it's a, it sort of brings up the issue of, I think what we're really trying to get at is how are these student athletes going to be treated and uh, sort of how is it going to play out, which we'll get into our last uh, uh, sort of question here about what's raised by the NCAA decision. And, you know, so again, I, I think another sort of piece of this is how are you going to regulate agents and attorneys? You know, ultimately we're talking about a vulnerable set of people who are in college, you know, have not entered the real world yet. They haven't had that first job, so to speak. And they're in somewhat of a protected environment in college. So how do we make sure that those student athletes are represented by the best? And uh, they're not going to be in a situation where they're getting taken advantage of. So maybe there's a registration process or something like that. The last piece we want to talk about today is with regard to amateurism. So what does this mean for student athletes going forward? Well, I think the simplest answer is that it means that student athletes are treated now like Olympic athletes. So and when you put it in that context, it's not that big of a deal in the sense of we're essentially just saying, and the NCAA is saying, and California is saying, let's treat our student athletes like we do Olympic athletes. They can still keep their, their eligibility for college. They can still stay in college. They're allowed to make money when they're competing. So I think that's sort of the, the, maybe the better or the best way to look at this. So what does this mean going forward? Well, I think we need to look at the actual market here of who we're talking about. What we're really talking about is, again, men, basketball players, football players in those specific sports, because those are the money-making sports, is one with the big television contracts and all that. And we're talking about the top 25 or 100 teams in the country, or 100, top 25 or 100 schools in the country, which can fluctuate you know, every year based on the AP rankings or whatever it may be. And then also the maybe top one to two players on each of those teams. Because again, think about it. A sponsor is not going to come along and want to endorse or vice versa somebody who has no market value. Meaning that there has to be a return on investment here. You know, so if, a, if, a, if a company wants to come along and say, hi, I want to sponsor you. Okay, that's great. But there has to be a market there. Whether that's a social media following, engagement. Um, that sort of thing. There has to be a market there. And ultimately, I could see a, a Nielsen group or something like that coming in and, and giving a uh, 
presentation on saying, okay, well, uh, this is how much value this particular player has, but you're not going to see the, you know, the left tackle or offensive lineman uh, or a defensive tackle, you know, whatever it is of an obscure team that's not sort of, you know, your, your perennial sort of powerhouse and or backup starter or that sort of thing. I mean, it's just, it's just going to be a rare thing. And so what we're really talking about is maybe 100 to 200, maybe 300 athletes total. And we're talking about a small subset, right? And, you know, again, even looking at professional leagues, you know, you do have your top players who get the deals and the lower level guys or the less recognized guys do get deals as well, but they're not going to be these big sort of, uh, you know, things. So again, there's potential to make money, but I think we need to put this into context. And then two last pieces, you know, specifically with the California law, there's a restriction in the law. I think it's subsection E1 in the California Education Code that they they added and then also amended is that it cannot conflict, meaning that, for example, UCLA has a $280 million Under Armour deal. A college student athlete would not be able to come along and sign an opposing deal with Nike or Adidas. And because, again, the value here would be that particular product getting shown on TV, which is the highlight of sort of, you know, uh, live television and that sort of thing. Now, of course, maybe you signed a deal off the field, but it's going to be less valuable because it doesn't have that much exposure. So sort of putting these things all into context and figuring out sort of how it's going to work, I think is important uh, because ultimately there needs to be a market there for these guys to, to ultimately make money. So again, I think we need to look at who we're talking about, we're talking about basketball and football players. We're talking about the top sort of one to two players on each team. We're talking about the top 25 or 100 teams in the country. And they're going to be limited by what deals they can sign. It's not going to be a bunch of apparel deals and stuff like that. I think the best example of this is probably Zion Williamson, where he was sort of asked to, you know, he basically went to college at Duke for one year and then sort of one and done and then got drafted by the New Orleans Pelicans. So, he ended up signing a Gatorade deal amongst some other some other deals. But the point being is, is that he signed that Gatorade deal after he was drafted and after he was in the league, so to speak. Um, you know, he hasn't played so far because he's been injured. I could conceivably see that Gatorade deal being signed a year earlier. So maybe he signs it when he's in college. I think that's what we're really talking about, that caliber of player, that sort of thing. And for sort of the... The, as you're moving down the chain, so to speak, the other players on the team might might get apparel deals where they get free stuff or that sort of thing. But I think, again, the regulatory scheme to this is going to be very important. I think protection is going to be very important. So that's all we have for this week, folks. Again, this is uh, Jeremy Evans, your host for Believe in Sports Law. Today is Monday, November 4th, and look forward to being with you back next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.